the dark hours, in the antique books, in the letters long lost and forgotten. There are tales of horror to frighten and disturb. Come, join us as we delve deep into the darkness. Into the sleepless hours when you dare not close your eyes. Brace yourself. For the No Sleep Podcast. Volume 16, Chapter 2. Welcome, sleepless listeners. I'm your host, David Cummings. Thank you for joining us once again and for all the positive comments about the launch of Season 16. And I would be remiss if I didn't give a shout-out to our maestro Brandon Boone for his arrangement of this season's theme, with special guest David Alt playing the cello part. And, of course, our senior producer, Phil Mikalski, for putting the audio finishing touches on it to bring it to life. Thank you, gentlemen, for your time and talent. Last week, as some of you will know, I received a package via the No Sleep Podcast's P.O. Box. It contained two letters, one modern, one old. It also contained a request to read the older letter on the podcast. I complied. It seems it pleased our mysterious benefactor, because this week we've had more mail containing two letters. As before, one was from our benefactor, and the other was the... Uh, submission? I'm still working from the perspective that these are very unique and unusual story submissions. But given the age of both documents, I'm just not so sure at this point. It's best if you listen to the first letter. Dearest Mr. Cummings, Oh my, you did such a grand job with my last delivery. You really captured the terror and doom that my friend, Captain Lawrence Thomas, felt while writing it. I do believe that I may indeed have found the correct recipient in you. However, I have one final task for you before I can fully commit and allow the real fun to begin. Enclosed is another letter. This one is much more recent. If you could smell a faint hint of lilac when you open this package, then the envelope for the second letter is the source. The smell has probably faded a little by now, but I assure you it was still strong when it came into my possession, even after being handled over and over by a woman named Allie. But I digress. For this letter, I need to know that it's not just you, but your entire team who can do my mission justice. Thusly... I would request that actors Jessica McAvoy, Nicole Goodnight, Peter Lewis, and Mary Murphy act out this letter as if it were one of your stories. Why those four specifically? I have my reasons. I know they are available to do it. You simply need to ask. Today I sign off as Eric Lockerbie. Again, it is not my real name. And again, it is a name important to this particular story. 
Please don't let me down. Next time, the real fun begins. Yours in good faith, Eric Lockerbie. Now, of course, we don't let our submitting writers insist on cast members. I almost said no. I was a little affronted at the boldness on display. But then I thought back over the last two packages, the strangeness, the clearly aged nature of the first letter, and I thought, okay, let's see where it goes. So here it is, correspondence enclosed in a faintly lilac-smelling envelope, entitled, To My Sister on Her Wedding Day. What I want to tell you, big sis, is that your future is going to be so bright. To stand up there tonight, the quiet one, the morose one, and give such a toast that you just light up the room. Something like, Allie, far and beyond any sisterly snark, the honest truth is that I want nothing more than for this day to be the single greatest moment of your life. Or, as you two look forward to the future... May you have more love than you know what to do with. Or even just, love is the beauty of the soul. Cheers. Unfortunately, I don't think I'll be able to say any of that. Not in good conscience, anyway. Which is why I'm here, in your honeymoon suite, writing you this dismal little letter that I'll afterwards stuff into a tiny lilac-smelling envelope and leave right here on the desk for you to discover come morning. Enclosed, you'll find, to the extent that I can muster it, the abysmal truth. Question. Do you remember the slack-skinned man? The name must seem like word salad to you now. The free association of a mental patient. A troubled child. A manic-depressive kid sister. Except I know the words are back there somewhere. Buried deep in your brain. Locked away, perhaps. Gone quiet and pale in the dark. Well, let the name drift down your tongue. Let it slither from whatever hiding place it's been in. Draw it up from the past to lash three times across your soft palate. Speak the words, dearest sister, and recall the slack-skinned man. Not all of us have had the luxury of forgetting... No. For me, the summer of 2006 is as here as an exposed nerve. The details. I was 10. You were 12. Mom and Dad were... Well, let's just say that their accident was about eight months old by that point. Old enough that people stopped asking questions unless we brought it up first, yet fresh enough on our minds that we were still too unnerved to ever do so which meant that as far as emotional processing of traumatic events goes, there wasn't any. It wasn't like we were in denial or anything. Yes, I acknowledge that mom and dad are dead, you once said of the topic. And we were simply emotionally elsewhere. This to match our being physically elsewhere, packed up like so many rattling puzzle boxes and mildewy shopping bags into Aunt Claire's SUV and shuttled down from the Atlanta suburbs to the sticks of southern Georgia. 
to the plantation, as Claire called it, though the land hadn't been used as such in many years. Indeed, it hadn't even been a residence for nearly half a century. Yet, as a moderately successful novelist of romance fiction, Claire was always on the lookout for places that had an air of mystery to them, a bit of unique excitement. In accepting an appointment as caretaker of the estate, she had as inspiration all the accoutrement of a real loin-stirrer. The remote estate draped in Spanish moss, the antique gas lamps lighting a footpath through the hedgerows, and of course, the gothic antebellum manor sitting at the estate's dead center. For this ten-year-old girl, the plantation might as well have been the farthest corner of a fairy tale kingdom. I had no desire to think about the world past those trees or beyond those footpaths or even outside those alabaster white walls. No, that summer, the manor served as my bulwark against the real, a fantasy zone, where around each corner or through any given door I was likely to find adventure, intrigue, mystery. Allie! Allie! I'd whisper across our dark bedroom as the manor creaked and moaned like a thing become alive. From the far side of your pillow, a terse reply. What? Do you hear that? It's just the house, Sam. Old houses creak. But what if it's a lost spirit? It's not. Now go back to sleep, Sam. Your annoyance with me had been increasing as of late. Though our being two years apart never seemed to matter before, the closer you drifted to the age of 13, the more that little kid I seemed to become in your eyes. Ironically, the very reason for this growing apart, hormones, was actually erasing our most evident difference. Your great golden blonde head of hair. Over the span of the last year, that stunning mane had grown dull and plain and... Well, more or less exactly like my own. You weren't particularly happy about the transformation. Instead of the pretty one, you'd become simply the other one, the older one, the first one. Perhaps this explains that nagging feeling I had that summer. A feeling that, though our time at Aunt Claire's estate saw us engaged in the same sisterly activities of past summers acting out stories and shadows on a bedroom wall, climbing trees high as we could until one of us chickened out, cunningly avoiding boys on our bicycles. You and I were growing more and more distant with each passing day. Or rather, you grew more distant. I wanted nothing more than for us to remain exactly the same forever and through all eternity. You outgrew me. You left me behind. And it was amidst all this, the accident and the summer and the mystery of sisters drifting apart, that we first made contact with him. Him? It? God, I can't even say anymore. The thing that has ruined me. There you go. The ancient Greeks had a word for the sound that gas makes in the human intestines. Borborygamus, an onomatopoeia. Just one of the many super important things I learned in my two and a half semesters of college. It's a great word to use when you're describing the sound that water pipes make in an old house. Borborygamus. 
It just sounds gross, right? Like something unpleasantly alive. Now, attach that sound to a location, specifically our bedroom at Aunt Claire's estate that summer. Up the stairs and down the hall, green door decorated with glued-together puzzles of puppies and Disney characters. Do you hear it? The plumbing in the walls? Gurgling. Bor-bor-rigamusing. And from whence? That's right. You remember. The bathroom across the hall. Remember how I would run back and forth at night from the TV to the sink to the TV, as if I couldn't decide which place I wanted to brush my teeth? I'm sure you do, because it seemed to annoy you to no end. You, standing one shoulder against the doorframe of our bedroom door, brushing your teeth with your sight fixed on the television, all while a kid's sister flung to and fro past you. Now, connect these pieces together. The pipes and the bathroom and the brat sister and the humid summer nights to pinpoint the exact moment in time when, with growing concern, I said, Allie, what now? You entered the bathroom to find me sort of hugging the sink, my head practically shoved into the thing, far enough that I could see up inside the faucet's mouth, the white crust of calcium buildup there. I heard something in the faucet. How many times do I have to tell you? Old houses are noisy. However, this time I would not be dismissed. As you turned to leave, I grabbed a hold of your arm, pulling you back. No, Allie, I'm serious. You have to listen. Like this. It wasn't enough to have my head in the sink. No. I went and twisted myself in there so that I had an ear pointed up at the faucet too. This while looking back at you with kid sister please levels of desperation. And for whatever reason, the sheer absurdity of the proposal, I can only presume, you didn't simply turn and walk away. No, you actually did as I asked. You crammed your head into the sink. And what you heard... Your ear to the cold metal was a warbling little voice. Hello? Is anyone there? Your eyes went wide as you glanced over at me, as if I could have been playing a trick on you. But it wasn't a trick. There was a voice coming from the faucet, distinctly masculine even through the tinny pipes. Don't be rude, Allie, I said. Say something to him. You brought your head back out from under the faucet, and we both gathered around the sink, resting our elbows on the cool ceramic. We stayed that way a moment, until finally you spoke. (sighs) Hello? Allie? Did I hear the name Allie? And Sam! Well, hello, and Sam. (laughs) Hello, and Allie. It's very nice to meet you both. For some, somewhere... Aunt Claire's romance novels had been a big deal. Grocery stores, probably? Anyway, the reoccurring protagonist of her novels was Riley Young, a high-spirited 20-something woman who often found herself in frequent close proximity to attractive, eligible men amidst breathtaking locales. Because, of course she does. The books would always begin with her on the verge of a big promotion or a new direction in her career. And then in walks Mr. Attractive and Eligible. 
A number of increasingly sexy scenes later, Riley would be just on the verge of surrendering her vital independence when, in often quite dramatic fashion, say by bolting on horseback or using a zip line to escape a hillside wedding ceremony, she would once again firm her resolve, returning to her oh-so-average life as a whip-smart novelist with yet another broken heart added to her list. Like I said, for some, somewhere though that somewhere also included a number of high-profile publishers and even a hint of Hollywood. This was especially true during the summer of 2006, as reports circled that Claire was beginning to bring the Forever Young series to a close. So, naturally, she had her share of visitors that summer. We would watch them from our perch in the trees. Interviewers, college students looking to make a buck editing... And, yes, even the occasional Hollywood type. They were always the funniest. To see them pass beneath us, fanning the necks of their shirts from the summer swelter. Absolutely out of their element. They'd wave us down from our tree, ask us which way to the manor. We'd always say, what manor? Then giggle as they looked left, then right, as if they'd wandered into the Okefenokee swamp. When Aunt Claire found out what we were doing... She gave us a firm talking to. Girls, you can't be doing that. We weren't being that mean. Mean nothing. It's not them I care about. You don't mess around with strangers. This world is not the kind of thing I write. It's not safe. We were being safe. And you rolled your eyes. There is no safe. Not unless you're under this roof, okay? Okay? To which we reluctantly replied, Okay. I'd like to take a moment to consider the word she used here, especially through the mind of a pair of preteens prone to smartassery. Under this roof, meaning, technically, that anyone we spoke to while inside of the manor was safe by default. Which, of course, included our new friend in the faucet. This worked out quite well, actually considering just how much he loved to talk. He had so much to say in those early days, so many questions about our lives. How was your day? What was for dessert? Chocolate cake? (laughs) Where is Allie? Will she join us soon? This at random intervals throughout the day, say, while washing our hands before dinner or brushing our teeth before bed or in the middle of a midnight tinkle. Question after question after question, though he was not as forthcoming regarding our own. So, tell me again why you talk to children through a faucet? This from the ever-incredulous you, as you leaned cross-armed across the bathroom wall. Children? Just the other day, Allie, you said you were almost thirteen. Yeah, but that doesn't answer my- When you're thirteen, you'll understand. Maybe not for nearly 13-year-old you, but for 10-year-old me, it was a sufficient enough answer. Remember, I was eight months orphaned and shipped off to a fairy tale estate brimming with fantastic sights. Our faucet friend, at least to me, he was just another part of that fantasy. A fantasy that was, for you, beginning to wane. Dinner time, late July. Cicadas sawing loud enough we could hear them over the running sink. You and I would know, 
because that's where we stood washing dishes after dinner. Claire had just left to answer the phone, and you turned and smirked at me, shutting off the water. There we stood quietly listening in on Claire's conversation with yet another boyfriend, complete with the all-too-familiar cadence of eager desperation. Hello? Oh, hello, Matthew. I was beginning to think you weren't going to call back. There we were with our attention fixed so, when from the kitchen sink came the voice of our strange summer companion. And Allie and Sam? It was a bit of a shock, actually. He'd never before spoken to us outside of the upstairs bathroom. I leaned in, whispered quickly. We can't talk now. But very little seemed to deter him. Hey, come to the window. We looked at each other, unsure what to make of that request. But with a shrug, we did as asked and lifted ourselves up on the sink to peer into the front yard. To see... nothing. Uh, what are we supposed to be looking for? No, no, not the kitchen window. The bathroom window. That made sense, actually. That was where the majority of our conversations had taken place, after all. So, without hearing the predictable conclusion to Claire's telephone call, we left the kitchen sink and made our way for the bathroom upstairs, where the only window was positioned high above the bathtub. A long, small window that I had to pull myself up by the inside ledge to even reach. But reach it I did, to fit my face beside yours. Do you see him? Not yet. Hanging from the ledge, I turned to the sink. Hey, where are you? In order to hear him, we had to remain deathly quiet. I'm down past the footpath, over at the well house. We scanned the yard until... There he was. Just like he said, out by the old well house, a six-foot-tall wooden shack partially obscured by layers of hanging moss from the trees above. Through the moss, one could just make out pipes running from the left side of the structure, and alongside those pipes now stood a man, an adult, dressed casually, his left hand holding one of the metal pipes to his mouth like you might an old-timey telephone. We see you! He saw us, too. Letting go of the pipe with his left hand, he proceeded to wave, never moving his other arm, his right arm, which he had kept bent behind his back, the way a man might hide flowers for a first date. And for a moment, obscured by hanging moss as he was, I told myself he seemed normal. Normal-ish, anyway. Normal for a man who speaks through faucets. Yet you clearly did not share this same opinion. What's up with your skin? What? The faucet man sounded confused. Hurt, even. If you cared, you didn't show it. Yeah, your skin looks all wrong. At first, I couldn't believe how rude you were being. However, the longer I stared, the more I began to see what you saw. Yes. Yes, if you looked through the hanging moss just right, his skin appeared, well, loose. Like his skin were a too big t-shirt he'd thrown on. Frankly, it was hard to really get a look at it, because not long after your comment did he abruptly stand straight, shoving his right arm farther behind him. 
as if the thing he were gripping back there was his own skin, which he twisted tight through his clothes. That looks much better. I was still concerned about offending him. Don't be rude, Allie. Tell him he looks much better. You did no such thing. No, you but blew at your own dull brown hair, sighed, and climbed back down. Here's another thing that happened that summer. You received your first period. I had just come back inside to see where you'd vanished off to. On any usual day, the incessant tip-tip-tipping of Claire's typewriter ensured that the downstairs of the manor was never too quiet. Yet this was not any usual day. A few empty rooms later, I finally heard a creak from the floor above. Then, murmured voices... So up I went, tiptoeing, first up the old stairs, then down the upstairs hallway, all while the voices gradually became clearer and clearer. I don't, I don't understand. Is, is, is something wrong? No, honey. There's nothing wrong with you. It's completely natural. Boy, you sure didn't like that. Natural? Oh, it sucks, and it hurts, and I hate it. Okay, okay, calm down. Just one second. I had only been a few feet away from the bathroom door when Claire exited, heading the opposite direction. Quietly, I slipped off through the green door into our bedroom, where I promptly hid, eyes on the crack in the door. From that vantage, I saw you at your most vulnerable, bare legs hanging from the toilet, hands crossed over your knees, awaiting Claire's return. This for a long ten seconds, while you sat completely still, quiet. Until, as if in response to someone in the room, you hopped up, turned the faucet on full blast, and repeated, Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! What's that? Aunt Claire was returning now from down the hallway. You twisted the knobs again, a squeal of the water shutting off. Nothing! I was just talking to myself. Claire arrived at the door. You were telling yourself to shut up? Yep. You replied coolly, though you might as well have said nothing at all, because as Claire stepped into the bathroom, she did so with a completely different topic on her mind. The tampon she held up in front of her. This is your new best friend. New. That's the word I would use to describe everything that came after that. New interests. A new arrogance. You'd one day call it poise. A new contempt for things you'd once appreciated. Chief among them, our friend in the faucet. You even gave him a new name. The what? The slackskin man. I don't want you to talk to him anymore. But why? What did he- Why? Because I'm older and smarter than you are, Sam. And when Claire said we were safe under this roof, she was dead wrong. But Allie! I said no. And with that, you slammed the bathroom door. Your mind was made up, and no amount of whining from a kid's sister was going to change it. The question was, was my resolve as firm as yours? A few evenings later... Coming awake in the middle of the night to a sound from the hallway, I proved it was not. Sam, Allie, 
there came the voice. This so-called slack-skinned man. I pushed the bedroom door shut, but didn't quite close it. Then, quietly, I slipped across the hall into the bathroom. Are you still there? Yes, I'm here, Sam. Long time no see. His voice had an itchiness to it, as if it were crawling up the pipes. I closed my eyes, imagining spiders pouring from the end of the faucet. And I must have slipped off into a standing dream, because when I opened my eyes again, it felt like time had passed. Allie told me not to speak to you anymore. He was quiet for a long while. Very unlike him, actually, to be so quiet. In fact, whatever he is, is the most unreserved thing I've ever encountered. Eventually, he spoke, this time his tone harsher. Did I hear her call me slack-skinned? I hesitated. Yes. Why did she do that? Because your skin, it's a little... It's a little loose, is all. What, is your skin perfect? No, but... Suddenly, the pipes began to rattle. Tell her that if she ever calls me that again, I'll cut a hole in her pretty belly and... Sam, move. You appeared from the hallway with a pillow in hand. You pushed past me toward the sink, where you proceeded to twist the pillow around the faucet, muting the voice inside. What did I tell you? You reached up into the medicine cabinet to fetch a roll of gauze. Don't talk to him. You have to promise me that you won't talk to him anymore. Do you promise? Already you were beginning to secure the pillow in place, wrapping it with gauze around and around. Yes. You have to promise. Yes, yes. Until finally you were satisfied with your handiwork, with my promise, with your control of the world both real and imagined. You stood back from the sink, dusting your hands off, admiring your work. Good. You looked proud. Good. Which brings us back to now. The wedding. The toast. The truth. And that truth is... I lack your resolute control over the world. Over what you choose to remember or not. Over your thoughts and whether you act on them. Over him. Recall your 13th birthday, when you and Danny Beaumont ditched me and snuck up to the treehouse to practice kissing. I had followed at a distance, but stopped short to find, standing at the bottom of the ladder, none other than the slack-skinned man, right arm bent behind him and gripping tight through his clothes, his own skin. He turned to look at me, his expression lost inside a face hanging too loose. Yet at the very moment that I began to blanch, he wrenched hold of himself, tightening his limp countenance into something more human. His voice was now deep as an open well. Hello, and Sam. Wonder and pity and a child's fear of being alone, those things you'd cast off from you, I felt them all at once in a tangle inside me. And then... At that very moment, you called down from the treehouse. Sam, go home. 
go. And just like that, the knot went loose, relaxed. I looked into the slack-skinned man's watchful gaze, and I knew what was going to happen. If not with you, I would be with him. If not yours, I would be his. Our parents' death had erected a wall between us and a normal, healthy childhood. As we each breached that barrier in our own way, we ultimately left each other behind. You got the self-possessed smile and take-what-you-want attitude. Me, I got the million-mile stare, the medicine cabinet of prescription pills, the slack-skinned man. While you were growing into the woman you've become, I was sinking farther and farther into him. Month by month, year by year, he's absorbed me, enticed me, really, deeper and deeper into that skin of his, into whatever we call the thing that hides the darkest parts of us. By freshman year of high school, I was brave enough to take his hand, a little rubbery to the touch, but beneath that odd and clammy skin, a comfort of bones, of there being something at his core that I could call human. If it existed, I hadn't found it by the time I started college. In fact, I think I had come to the opposite conclusion, that he was as far from human as possible. Yet year by year, I steeled myself against that horror. Now, today, I'm all calm-nerved to stand before him. My bridesmaid's dress slips from me and onto the floor, and I don't think twice about it. It's time. Indeed, through the hotel window I see the beach, and on that beach, against a backdrop of lapping waves, friends and family gather to say goodbye to the old you, and to greet the new one. It's my time, too. Time to give what's left of me to him. He can have it. In fact, I want him to have it. And maybe I'll finally get to see what is underneath that skin of his. To see what, exactly, is inside nothing. In our first tale, we find ourselves in the UK, where Mr. Hale, an innkeeper, keeps a lonely vigil as owner of a bed and breakfast. It's a lovely place to stay, the perfect hub to take in the British countryside in all directions. Well, most of them. But in this tale, shared with us by author S.H. Cooper, we learn there's one direction you should never go, into the marshes. Performing this tale are Andy Cresswell, Erica Sanderson, David Alt, and James Cleveland. So come and stay, have a good time, explore all you want in the daylight. But when the night falls, it's best that you don't leave Whitemore House.
don't go out after dark. That had been one of the inn's rules since it opened in the late 19th century. Built on the edge of a wide swathe of marshland, it was large, beautiful, and sitting on a precarious edge. During daylight hours, paths were easy enough to see, and enough signposts had been erected that finding one's way to and from Whitemore House wasn't much of a challenge. After nightfall, however, shadows had a way of obscuring signs and swallowing light. Pathways got tangled and lost underfoot, and one misstep was all it took to end up in one of the bogs. And once you were in, there was almost no getting out. I inherited Whitemore from my grandfather after he passed away. My mother had been offered the inn, but her life was well established far off in the city, and she couldn't bring herself to leave it behind. She first offered it to my sister, who likewise had too many ties elsewhere, and then to me. I considered turning it down as well, but the thought of Whitemore being outside of the family for the first time in over a century was an upsetting one. I wrestled with the idea for many days, but after an afternoon of going through old photo albums, seeing how happy everyone had been there, how happy I'd been... I knew what I had to do. It was easier than I thought it would be, leaving it all behind. My parents helped me pack my things, and we all made the four-hour trek north to the distant countryside. The crunch of gravel under my tires as we pulled up to the gates was enough to make the butterflies in my stomach swarm. Memories from my childhood, ones I had not thought about in many years, rushed back to me. Walking hand in hand with my grandparents across the expansive grounds bordered on all sides by tall stone walls, racing my sister up and down the grand staircase, our shoes clattering noisily against the dark hardwood, squishing myself between mum and the arm of a well-worn but still comfortable chair so that she could read to me before bedtime. I was sure some of it was skewed by the rosy lens of nostalgia, but I was glad to be back. Grandad, who believed the job wasn't truly done until it had been overdone, had left behind a thick stack of instructions on how to care for and run the inn. The first few months I was there, I pored over every word he'd written, taking notes, making a few tweaks here and there to modernize the place. The staff, all old hands by the time of my arrival, were generous with their tips and tricks and only too willing to assist me in learning my new role. Between my grandfather's thorough guides and the helpfulness of the employees, I was confident that the White Moor would continue to operate successfully with me at the forefront. That was, as long as I kept to the rules. The list was long, but a few of them stuck out. Do not leave the grounds after dark. No one may enter the marsh after sunset. Do not leave the lamps on the exterior garden walls lit after 7pm. Lock all four gates by 7pm. If someone needs to come or go, they can phone the front desk for assistance. But the north gate leading to the marsh trails must remain closed regardless. I asked the head of housekeeping, Melinda, about the list, and she shrugged. 
just how things have to be. Best to follow through, as your granddad said. He knew what he was doing. I learned quickly enough that he had, in fact, known what he was doing, and why the rules were so important. It was a hard lesson, but one I only needed once, and after that single incident, I quickly found my footing as proprietor and grew comfortable in my position. As the years passed, all of the inn's quirks and mysteries revealed themselves to me, and it went from being my family's inn to my inn, to my home. Almost two decades after I'd taken over, the inn was as successful as it had ever been, and I was still just as happy that I had returned as I had been on my first day. And then, the Baileys showed up. Immediately, I could tell that this family was going to be something of a handful. Seven rambunctious children, two overworked, overtired parents, and an elderly grandmother who couldn't be bothered with any of it. I met them as they were checking in and started with the usual pleasantries. Mr. Bailey, a larger man with a frayed look about him, interrupted me mid-sentence. Yeah, all very well and good. Where's our rooms? Ah, of course. I smiled pleasantly, too long in the business for a little brusqueness to get under my skin. You have five rooms, all side by side, on the third floor. It lifts? I do apologize, but we only have a service lift, as it says in our brochure. The inn was built before elevators. But if your mother needs assistance, I can have one of the staff take her up in the lift. We do provide a wheelchair. <sighs> The old woman harumphed from behind her son. He snorted, <laughs> swiping the keys from the desktop. Next you're going to be telling me you've not got any running water. No worries there, Mr. Bailey. Now, before you go up, I just want to make you aware of some of the inn's rules. No need. We'll figure it out. He started to gather up his brood and move them to the stairwell. Well, if you'll just allow me a moment to... Later, later. Come on, kids, up you go. I frowned and watched them ascend. The rules were clearly posted in all rooms, but I still liked to go over them personally, especially when I doubted they'd be read. I brushed it off, figuring I'd get them later when they came down for supper, and I went about my business. It was easy to forget about the ten Bailey bunch with so much else to take care of. And by evening time, they'd slipped my mind completely. Good night, Jonah. I walked through the lobby for my final nightly inspection. Jonah called me back to the desk. Oh, Mr. Hales, I had a question. About the rules? A naturally nervous lad, Jonah had only been working as our overnight reception attendant for a week, and every time he saw me, he had at least one new question. I was glad that he doubled, sometimes triple checked with me before he did anything he wasn't certain about, but I did hope he'd gain some independence soon. I smiled, tired but open, and nodded for him to continue. So, what do we do if someone went out on the marsh trails at 6.30 and isn't back yet? 
Excuse me? I gripped the edge of the desk, praying this was a hypothetical. Well, you know, that family with a lot of kids? They walked through about 6.30 and I heard them saying they were going to go out to the marshes. He trailed off into a strangled silence when he saw that the color had all but drained from my face. I looked at the clock over his shoulder. 8.13. Why didn't you tell me this sooner? I didn't wait for an answer. I dashed from the lobby, moving faster than I had in years, and I ran to my room. Under my bed, I kept a kit, one I had put together and refreshed and renewed every few years after that incident two decades before. I'd been so unprepared then, I hadn't known. But now I did. Equipped with a lantern, flashlights, earplugs, ropes and flares, I skidded down the steps and through the halls until I spilled out onto the inn's back lawn, the one that faced the marsh. Even as I ran across the grass to the back fence, I knew that it was too late. Knew that it had grown too dark. I knew that I wouldn't find them. Still, I dug through my ring of keys until I found the one labeled North Gate, and I broke the rules. I unlocked the gate, and I went out into the darkness. I made sure to shut and lock it securely behind me, and I tied one end of my rope securely to one of the wrought iron bars. The other end I tied around my waist. It was a long rope, the longest I could find, and would allow me to walk a little way into the marsh without going too deep. It was too dangerous at night to go in any other way. All I could think about the entire time I readied myself, putting in my earplugs, checking my lights, was that one night 20 years before. I hadn't known. Grandad hadn't left me anything about it and no one had told me. There had been a wedding that afternoon. It was a beautiful affair, filled with love and happiness, and crowded, very crowded. No one noticed when the bride's sister, a 12-year-old girl named Hannah, wandered off, bored by the reception. We'd all been so busy that we'd forgotten to close the north gate, much less lock it, and we assumed later that she'd been intrigued by the marsh and its trails. By the time people started looking for her, calling for her, it was after dark. We were all frantic, running about, tearing the place apart. We found her little bouquet of lilies on the path just beyond that tree line that marked the entrance of the marsh. Police came, firemen, paramedics, and all of us, all of us save those who'd worked at the inn for a long time, went in. Searchlights, dogs, radios, footsteps, voices shouting. It was so loud and so bright, she should have been able to find her way back to us. But she never did. They looked for days, and I joined every search party. We combed through the marsh, but there was just no sign of her. Eventually, the heart-wrenching decision was made to give up. It was decided that Hannah had strayed from the path and fallen into a bog, and no one had heard her over the wedding celebration. 
and that was the end of it. Guilt consumed me, and I found myself trying to ease it with the aid of bottle after bottle of whiskey, until Melinda pulled me aside one day after hours and sat me down in my office with a glass of water and a sigh. You didn't follow the rules, Mr. Hales. I know. I don't think you do. How could I not? I didn't follow the rules and now some child has lost her life due to my negligence. She shook her head and pulled her chair close to mine. After a quick glance over her shoulder to ensure we were alone, she continued in a low voice. Your granddad didn't want you or your family to know about this because he worried it'd make you want to sell the place. He didn't inherit until after your mum moved out, so she never knew either. But it's time. The marsh, Melinda told me, wasn't an evil place. It was sad and it was lonely, and that made it dangerous all the same. It had always been easy to lose your way in it, and many a person had paid the ultimate price for their misstep. They're stuck out there, Mr. Hales, and they long to be free, to be with their families again. It's that longing that keeps them there. Grief and loneliness are powerful drives, and it keeps them searching every night for someone to keep them company. Ghosts? I was sceptical, even in my half-drunk state. If that's what you want to call them. After nightfall, they pull themselves from the bog and they cry out for anyone who can hear to find them and join them. We living never mean to, but it's hard to ignore something that pulls at our hearts so strongly. The pain they feel, the anguish and despair... It pulls us to them. Our empathy is our greatest weakness out there. You're shitting me. You believe this? I believe there are more powerful things in this world, and that hurt is one of them. Do you know what bogs used to be used for? Not really. Graveyards, Mr. Hales and not the kind you go and pay your respects at. They were a dumping ground for bodies, people who had been sacrificed or murdered. They were where the hopeless would go to end their suffering. Bogs have a long history of death, and ours is no different. Those who pass under such circumstances with such anger or grief burning inside them. have a hard time letting it go. You think we're sitting on a mass gravesite? Seriously? She narrowed her eyes at my dismissal and stood. Come, let's go for a walk. And so we did. Up the dark pathway and to the north gate where she told me to stand still and listen. At first, all I had heard was the wind blowing through the marsh, a few night birds, and I felt silly. I almost told her so, but she was clutching the gate and staring out with such intensity that I remained quiet, 
and followed her gaze. That was when I heard it. Somewhere in the distance, barely audible, the sound of a young girl sobbing, calling for help. The more I listened, the more I heard. Moans and voices from somewhere out in the bogs. And part of me wanted to go to them. Why have I never heard this before? I was scarcely able to form the words. I had to turn my back to the gate and shake my head to help collect myself. It's easy to miss from here when you're so distracted by everything else. Out there, though, when you're alone and away from the inn and light and life, you can't help but hear. But when we were out that night looking, we didn't see anything. There was so much else going on. You were too busy looking to see, too distracted. I'd never gone back outside at night after that except to lock the gates myself. And since then, I'd always made sure to follow the rules. Until the Baileys. With earplugs in place and my rope to guide me home, I inched my way towards the tree line. Beyond it, I knew it would open up into the flat, seemingly endless expanse of the marsh and all of its bogs. I could hear the thud of my heart beating against my ribs, feel the chill of fear prickling against the back of my neck, but I pushed myself forward. I started to lose slack on my rope as soon as I had crossed through the trees, just as I had intended. I raised the lantern high and narrowed my eyes, searching the gloom for any sign of the large family. There were shapes in the shadows. Some I could write off as overgrown plants and old stumps, but others were different, larger, all too human. They swayed in the windless night, and when my lantern light stretched out towards them, barely brushing the closest one with the edge of its glow, it reached back. And then, slowly, it started to move towards me. Fear rooted me to the spot, although I was screaming at myself to go, to run back to the inn. It was getting closer, and with each step I could see it more clearly. Long, dark hair, the dirty remains of some kind of dress, and its skin leather-like and stretched across its bones. Its thin lips were moving. It was speaking or screaming or crying. I didn't know. The earplugs prevented it. But I knew it wanted me to join it. It was on the path now, just down the way from me. And its hands with its long skeletal fingers were grasping at me, beckoning me. Behind it, others had noticed and were starting to crawl and climb from the marsh onto the path. A giant of what had once been a man, his dark face twisted and flattened by ages spent under the weight of the muck and mire, his skull concave on one side, lumbered forward. Another woman, her belly still tellingly large and round beneath the rags that still clung to her, limped towards me. Remnants of decaying rope bound her wrists. 
A third, a young girl in the remains of a party dress, 20 years out of fashion, held out her arms to me, as if asking me to pick her up. More were rising behind her. The bog had preserved them, drying their skin, thinning it, darkening it, until they were deflated, sunken versions of their former selves. They moved stiffly, almost painfully, and all of them were coming for me, the only living being in a sea of the dead. They were close enough for me to see their eyes, muddied and yellowed and fixed on me. My light reflected dully off them. It was those eyes that had me moving, running, tripping, pulling myself along with the rope back to the inn. All of the preparations I'd made to throw flares and use more flashlights and light up the marsh as we'd done the night we looked for Hannah were gone. My only goal then was to get back behind the gate and lock myself in. I fell once, hard, onto my shoulder, and one of my earplugs came loose, and I lost it in the shadows. I could hear them then, their sadness, their misery raised in a chorus of choked gurgles and raw wailing. It surrounded me, came from all sides, assaulted me with its desperation. I could feel it clawing at my mind, begging me to turn, to let them have me. There were no words spoken, but I so clearly heard them, a hundred voices all filling my head. Join us. Join us. Join us. I strained against it, forcing myself to look ahead at the inn, to focus on the light still shining from the windows. I thought of Melinda, gone these past few years, of Jonah, who still needed so much help, of my family, who had given me the gift of the Whitemoor and the wonderful life I'd come to lead in. I thought of my grandfather and all of his careful, loving instructions passed on so that the place he had cared so much for could continue on without him. I slapped a hand over my ear, blocking out the call of the marsh, and found my feet. I stumbled onward, through the gate, spun, and slammed it shut. When the key turned in the lock with a satisfyingly heavy click, I released the breath I hadn't known I'd been holding. I dared to glance back, and in the darkness... I saw yellow pinpricks glaring back at me. I did call the police the next morning, and they searched the marsh. But the Baileys were not found. Officially, the inn wrote them off as having skipped out without paying. Unofficially, those of us who had been at the inn long enough knew the truth. After that, I kept the north gate locked and refused access to the marsh at any time, regardless of whether it was day or night. And business resumed as usual. Hannah and the Baileys were not spoken of again. I'm getting older now. Almost too old to keep running the White Moor. And sometimes think of retiring. On those nights, I go up to the attic and I sit in the chair I placed up there, and I look out the window, down to the marsh, 
and I see tiny pinpricks of yellow in the darkness. I am reminded that, as long as I am able, I have a duty to the inn and its staff and its guests. I'm one of the few remaining who still know its history and what's out there, wandering the marsh. And I stay. Rummaging around yard sales can be fun. Who knows what you'll find? Cursed containers, peculiar portraits, or the ultimate prize, possessed game consoles. But in this tale, shared with us by author L. Hutchinson, our main character finds a mirror, and unfortunately, the purchase reflects badly on him. Performing this tale are Dan Zapula, Atticus Jackson, and Mike Delgadio. So polish up that glass, study the face that looks back at you. Is everything a mere image, or is it just slightly off? So I'm a fan of garage sales. Nothing better on a sunny Saturday than walking to some house near me and doing a little treasure hunting. And I had recently moved into a new apartment, so it was a perfect time to find some things to fill up the space with, as well as get a better feel for the lay of the land around my new home. I got to this one garage sale by wandering around and following a few signs. And that's where I saw the mirror. I couldn't believe they were selling it. It looked old, with a frame made of some kind of dark, hard wood with intricate molding around the fringe. The mirror itself was huge, definitely taller than me if stood up on the floor, and I'm not a short guy. It seemed like the kind of thing that would be in some Victorian palace. Or a horror movie. It was pretty creepy looking, to be honest, but I've never been one to shy away from spooky stuff. The asking price was only $20, so I decided to buy it right then and there and carry it home. The garage sale proprietor called after me as I started lugging it off. Be careful with that. There's only one. After getting mildly lost and getting back to my apartment, I set it up in my living room, just across from the door into the kitchen. It looked good. It looked like it was always meant to be there. Everything was fine at first. I went on with the rest of my day, did some work on a programming project I was hoping to get done over the weekend. But when I got up to go to the kitchen and refill some tea, I walked by the mirror. Something seemed off. I saw my reflection in the mirror out of the corner of my eye. I wasn't looking directly at it. But it was like my reflection wasn't exactly right. I stopped and went back and looked at the mirror. There was me. There was my face. 
There was a bit of food that spilled on my shirt that I didn't notice before. Looking carefully, it it was fine. I decided it must have just been my imagination and continued to the kitchen. In the kitchen, I went about pouring myself some more tea. I started the kettle and set my mug down on the counter. When I set the mug down, it made a clank sound against the tile, which is normal. But what was weird is right after it did, I heard another, softer clank sound coming from the living room. Almost like an echo, but in a space where there clearly was not enough room for an echo to happen. I picked up my mug and set it down again. Same thing. Just a split second after, the same noise came from the living room. I went back to the living room to check it out again. Looking from the doorway at my reflection, it seemed off again. I was looking right at it this time. It wasn't out of the corner of my eye. I could see that my reflection wasn't doing exactly what I was. It looked like me, but its movements weren't exactly the same. Like on a TV show, if you filmed two takes of an actor doing the same actions and played them side by side, it's the same person, they're doing the same thing, but it's not exactly the same, you know? In that moment, my reflection looked really off. I made eye contact with it, and it wasn't like I was looking at myself. It was like it was looking at me. I backed away from it. It seemed crazy, right? A mirror is just a piece of reflective material that light bounces off at a symmetrical angle. We live in a world of atoms and photons and physics, not ghosts and supernatural mirrors. That's what I told myself, but I still went back to my desk to get my phone. I came back, camera running and video recording. Looking at the mirror again, it seemed normal. Nothing was off. Just a normal video of some guy taking a selfie in the mirror and looking terrified for no reason. I waved my hand in front of the camera and the reflection of my hand moved in perfect sync with it. You're being stupid. I thought to myself. I walked away from the mirror and was about ready to go back to my desk when I had one more thought. I was looking at the mirror from the side and couldn't see my reflection. I tiptoed back up to it and then quickly popped my head in front of it to give the mirror a surprise attack of looking in it. And I was shocked by what I saw. My reflection was gone. G-O-N-E. Gone. Not fucking there. My head was right in front of the mirror, but all I saw was the kitchen behind me. Behind where my head's reflection should have been in the mirror if it wasn't there. I froze. That's when I noticed that my reflection wasn't totally gone. No. I saw it there. Way back. Through the kitchen door. It was standing there, in the shadows, with its head down, its eyes shaded. It was looking at me, its fists clenched at its sides. Then, it began to move, walking briskly across the kitchen towards me. I could see it. I could hear it. I backed away from the mirror again, getting to its side. Again, I could no longer see my reflection in the mirror. And it could no longer see me. But that wasn't good enough. I didn't feel safe. 
I looked around the living room and saw a blanket I had draped on the back of my couch. I grabbed it and flung it over the mirror, blocking me from seeing it. Or it from seeing me. I don't know. It just made sense in my panicked mind that I needed to block the mirror. But obviously I wasn't fine after that. I have a mallet in the kitchen I use for tenderizing meat. I remembered it and ran to the kitchen to grab it before running back to the living room. Still just a mirror with a blanket over it, but I didn't know how long before something happened. I delivered the hammer into the top of the mirror. Mirror shards scattered and fell out from behind the blanket, spilling all over the living room floor. Fortunately, I was wearing shoes. I hit it again. Lower this time. More pieces of mirror fell out. I hit it again and again and again in different spots until I didn't hear anything but the wooden frame being hammered, just slightly dulled from the blanket over it. At this point, I was tempted to look under the blanket, just to make sure there was nothing there, but I decided against it. I mean, I watch horror movies a lot. I like horror movies, but there is always the point where you get so frustrated with the protagonist and wonder, why don't they get out of the house? Why don't they call for help? Well, I decided to get out of the house. And once I was out on the street, I called for help. It's not like I could call the police. If I told them what happened, all I would get is an array of drug tests. So, I called my friend Will. Will and I are pretty tight. He always told me, joking, I'm pretty sure, that he would call me if he ever needed help burying a body. I figured that this wasn't quite as bad as burying a body, so he should be willing to be there while we figured things out. I called him and told him what I saw. When Will arrived, I was waiting on the street for him, pacing around. I spent way too long telling him that no, it was not a carbon monoxide leak. Then, we went in the house. Will looked at the mirror shards on the ground. Jesus, man, you didn't tell me there was going to be broken glass everywhere. I'm going to go put my shoes back on. Will trudged back to where he removed his shoes by the door. He was right, I hadn't. Mundane dangers like him cutting his feet didn't really cross my mind. I looked at the shards. They seemed like they were spread out more than when I left. Almost in kind of a path, leading away from the mirror's frame. The distribution of the shards wasn't the only thing different. I looked at the mirror. The blanket was still there, but it didn't fully cover the surface like I remembered it before. It was slightly pulled to the side. I could now see the aged, scratched wood of the mirror frame that used to be behind the glass. On my living room table, where I normally kept a pad of paper and some pens... I saw that one sheet of paper had been taken off the pad and left there. I picked it up. It said, Thank you, in simple handwriting. No, not just any handwriting. My handwriting. Except, it was written backwards. I looked up to the window on the street outside. When I was waiting for Will, I had walked away from my house. I wouldn't have seen someone walk in or out of it. Out on the street now, it was still light out, but the sun was setting. It was getting darker out. Through the window, 
I could see the empty street, but could also see the reflection back into my living room. Will came back in to join me. He must have seen me looking out the window and gotten curious. He placed a hand on my shoulder. Hey man, what are you doing? Do you see something? I kept looking at the window. With the lights on, I could see inside the living room. I could see the broken mirror in the corner. And I could see Will standing there looking at empty space, waiting for a reply. I could see him putting his hand up on nothing, as though he was just holding it in the air. No, man. I don't see anything. Guilt. It's a powerful emotion. It can bring us to our knees, or it can encourage us to go to great lengths to make amends. It's not something you want to live with. But in this tale, shared with us by author Adam Davies, one man's attempt at absolution leads to even further strife and terror. Performing this tale are David Alt, Alexis Bristow, Penny Scott Andrews, and Erica Sanderson. So sit back and admire the art, appreciate the gift, understand the good intentions, but does it really make up for the betrayal? It is an alluring voice, one raked over the coals of late nights and strong cigarettes to a seductive rasp. The word itself swims in layered meaning, part greeting, part question, part challenge, as though I need to justify my intrusion. Hello? Uh, yes, is this the studio of uh, Camille L'Enfer? Oui. Great. I've seen one of your paintings online I may be interested in buying. Of course. She says this as though the thought of anyone calling an artist for any other reason were preposterous. I am nervous, like a teenager asking a girl on a date. This is ridiculous, I think. The painting is called Lover. Le Mans? It is trash. I am shocked and thrown off kilter, but we have at least moved beyond monosyllabic responses. Um, it, it, it looks beautiful online, and my wife is a huge fan of yours. Can I inquire how much the painting costs? Who are you? <laughs> I'm sorry, how rude of me. Uh, I'm Alex. Alex. She lingers on the final sound, swilling it around her mouth like a fine brandy. I only agree to some paintings after une consultation privée. Oh, you're in Paris? C'est un problème. I have bought artwork before, so I am accustomed to the eccentricity of artists. 
Even so, this is a new one on me. I consider the situation. The cost of a trip is not a problem. I have wealth, but I lack the time. Still, after all I have put my wife through, the least I can do is inconvenience myself with a day trip. There are worse places in the world to visit than Paris. I crawl through the dense, angry traffic of the sprawling city in the back of a cab plastered with Ivory Coast football stickers. It is redolent with the lingering smell of stale cigarettes and even staler body odour. There is a sweltering summer heat, and the open windows blow the air and odours around the car. The stench crawls into my nose and lungs. It permeates my hair and settles like a sticky resin on my skin. We crawl towards Montmartre, the artist's quarter, where the absinthe dreams of French artists break through to reality on canvas and clay. We drive deep into a labyrinth of crumbling tenements that crowd the narrow streets lined with sunbathing prostitutes and degenerate addicts. The taxi stops and I stand sweating and 40 euro lighter from the journey. A bank of buzzers greets me and a faded but immaculate script identifies the buzzer for Camille L'Enfer's studio. I press and without reply a buzzing click signifies that someone has unlocked the door for me. I guess that she is on the fourth floor from the number and layout of the buzzers and make my way up the echoing, spacious spiral stairwell. There is no sign or plaque on the door to show which of the two apartments is hers. I guess and press on the intricate brass fixture that holds the ceramic button. A hollow ringing sound akin to an old-fashioned Bakelite dial phone echoes around whatever space lays beyond. I hear movements from within. A striking woman opens the door. Incense forms a sandalwood frame around her, blurring her edges and making her indistinct as she blends with the scent of the room. She is certainly beautiful, but beauty is not the right word to describe her. It is too mundane. She has large brown eyes and full cupid bow lips, but there is no sharpness or definition to her smooth, delicate skin. Her face has an ethereal quality, unknowable, like some 1930s silver screen icon only ever seen through a soft focus lens. She wears her chestnut hair tied back in a ponytail, and stray curls lead my eyes down to a graceful, slender neck. She wears paint-splattered dungarees and an artist's smock. She suits understatement, and unbidden, my mind's eye begins to construct what lies hidden beneath the baggy folds. Alix. Once again, she holds the sound like a viper's hiss. She looks down at her outstretched hand, and I realize with embarrassment that I have failed to notice her extended to me. I smile and shake. Her smile is a judgmental, perfunctory thing, something her face performs out of necessity, not pleasure. She motions for me to enter her studio. It is a temple to her art. Canvases in a dozen stages of the artistic process lie scattered on benches or stacked against the walls. A half dozen easels, most covered with heavy cloth, hide her current works. 
Here, in the beating heart of her labours, the incense cannot mask the smell of oil paint and turpentine. The scents mingle to a cloying, head-swimming perfume. An unseen radio plays a rhythmic, sensual blues guitar. She bids me pass through a door on one side of her workspace. Beyond it, the sterility of a pure white room with a single easel replaces the creative chaos of her studio. I recognize the painting as Lover from its online image. It is exquisite in real life, where the subtlety of color and texture add depth and character to the subject matter. It's beautiful. May I get you a drink? Uh, Yes, uh, some water, please. It's very warm. I watch her go through a door on the opposite side of the studio. My gaze lingers on the sway of her hips that accompanies the music. She returns with two glasses of a potent-smelling yellow liquid. She sees my confusion. Alex, this is not angel there. We do not transfer art over water. The drink gives a powerful alcoholic hit. I wince, but it is cool and refreshing, spicy, fruity, and subtly bitter. (sighs) What is it? Suze. We regard the picture in an uncomfortable silence. I am unsure what I am supposed to do or say. I try to break the tension. Uh, My wife is a huge fan of yours. C'est un cadeau. A gift? Yes. She turns to stare at me and I lose myself in the intensity of her gaze. A guilty gift. I say nothing. This is not the right gift to give for guilt, Alex. She takes the picture down and disappears into her studio. She returns with a different canvas and places it on the easel. It is a different woman, painfully thin. Her face is almost featureless, yet radiates an intense sadness and feeling of betrayal. It is extraordinary how so little detail can capture so much emotion. She is right. This perfectly captures the pain I have caused my wife. Trezon. Her name is Betrel. How much is she? You must pay what you think is the right amount. I really have no idea where to begin. You want to say sorry to your wife? How much is contention worth to you? I do not know how to reply, and she wanders off into her studio and busies herself squeezing paint tubes onto a palette. Five thousand euro. It must be expensive, no? You have flown to Paris merely to talk to me. To relieve the guilt. The price you must pay is higher, I think. Otherwise you are not truly sorry, no? Ten thousand euro. Her lips turn down and she gives a Gallic shrug. My paintings are my soul made flesh. Should I sell you my soul for such a pittance? I pay 22,000 euro to assuage my guilt and take home the painting on the evening flight. I set the picture up on an easel in our drawing room. She looks at home, a regal matriarch presiding over the parquet floor and wood-panelled serenity of her realm. She dominates this section of our beautiful home, the home my wife built for us. Her elegance and sadness draw my eye. I feel pleased with myself. I have done wrong, but now I am making amends. There is a way through this.
I leave pre-dawn to pick my wife up from the airport. She needed to take some time away to process things. The early morning drive is tense and frosty. How was your trip? Fine. How is your mother doing? Fine. Everything is fine, except clearly nothing is. The sun could not break through the thick grey clouds, and the heavy electric feeling in the air promised a summer storm. I carry her bags through to the kitchen and make her tea and toast. I got you something. She shoots me a withering glance, a warning to me that I should dare not seek approval for some trivial gift. Later, Alex. I'm tired. She makes her way to our bedroom. I take my tea to the drawing room and drink it under the watchful, judging eye of Trizon. My wife emerges a few hours later looking sleepy, but with more colour in her cheeks than post-flight. I make her more tea and study her mood for the right moment to speak. The silent atmosphere remains brooding and uncomfortable. I feel my own anxiety rise. If she just looks at the picture, she will understand that I'm trying to make amends. I got you something. It's in the drawing room. Her eyes roll as she makes exaggerated, inconvenienced noises as she rouses herself from her kitchen seat to follow me. I open the door to let her go first. I realize I am nervous. Absurd to be nervous of giving a gift to one's own wife. I stand behind her a respectful distance. She looks at the picture, head cocked, to take in its full aspect. It's a Camille L'Enfer. Pointless. Surely she knows from the style. She makes a non-committal grunt to acknowledge my words, Mm. or the gift, perhaps. I realize with a terrible sadness that I no longer understand my wife's subtle, secret language anymore. It was a language only the two of us ever spoke, its etymology built on a trust that no longer held. I leave the room and make us a simple pasta dinner. When I call to tell her it is ready, she takes her bowl and the wine bottle to the sitting room with her. I eat alone at the kitchen counter. It grows dark. I'm going to bed, hun. I lean in through the drawing room door. The pasta is untouched, but the wine is three quarters gone. She is sprawled on the chaise longue, studying the picture. I'll sleep in the guest room, Alex. Jet lag. I begin to head upstairs. She's... beguiling. I pause. Thank you. Two words. Two words that shine the light of hope on my marriage. Thank you. I go to bed alone and elated. I take tea up to the guest room in the morning. The bed is untouched. I go to the drawing room and my wife is asleep on the chaise longue, the throw drawn up over her shoulders for warmth. She looks thin and drawn. Yesterday's travel and the poisonous tension of the last few weeks have taken their toll on both of us. She stirs awake. I don't feel well. She does not look well. Her skin is sallow and sheened with a cold sweat. I'm hardly surprised she's a lightweight drinker at the best of times, so to polish off almost a whole bottle of red, having been so tired and drained after a long-haul flight, 
I expect it's just a hangover filtered through a lens of exhaustion. I get her a glass of water, some painkillers and a bowl for her nausea, then I leave her to it. I reflect that it is no bad thing for us to be apart. It has been a tense 24 hours. Before she went away, our house was a tempestuous minefield that threatened to explode at any moment. But since she returned, the bitter, stinging recency of our troubles have given way to an enduringly cold, emotional wasteland. At least with the rage and accusations I could revel in my much-deserved punishment, our volcanic exchanges led to the spewing of incendiary but true feelings. Even though the flames burned, at least they supplied light enough to see a path through our problems. Fire cleanses as it destroys. Now the brooding silence and forced civility has drawn a dense fog over our marriage. The calm had taken us further away from resolution and closure. I find myself staring at the picture rather than leaving the room. She seems to react to the changing light in her new home. The sun shines through the slatted wooden blinds and gives her skin a healthy glow that enhances her subtle color palette. It makes her look better fed, less emaciated than yesterday's meager gray light. I watch TV alone, taking none of it in. I switch it off and read until bedtime. I choose the guest room so as not to disturb my wife while she is unwell. I wake in the night to the fleshy slap of bare feet on our wooden stairs. I check my watch. 3 a.m. Perhaps she wants a drink of water or needs to be sick in the bathroom. I try to return to my fitful sleep but can only toss and turn as the weight of our broken marriage bears down on me. My thoughts race wild in the darkness. I am unable to hold a train of thought. I wake late having had a terrible sleep. My wife looks awful. She sits slouched on the chaise long, huddled in the throw. She is shivering. Her hair is matted and damp from perspiration. The bergamot scent diffusers cannot mask the sharp, ammonia stench of sickness in the room. You look terrible. She winces at my words like they are a slap in the face. It's just because of the sickness. She can't think I mean she actually looks terrible, can she? With the filter of trust gone, words hold newfound destructive power, the most innocuous phrase open to profound misinterpretation. I realize that speaking to her puts me on edge. I'll ring the doctors. It's Sunday. You won't get an appointment. Then I'll drive you to the hospital emergency department. I'm not dying, Alex. But her voice is a hoarse whisper. Fine, I'll go to the pharmacy and pick up something, some medication that might make you feel better. I am desperate to do something to ease her suffering, but she does not seem to want my help. My suggestions feel clumsy and misguided, but I need to do something. I cannot just let her suffer in silence. I dress and head to the shops where I buy painkillers, herbal remedies, and essential oils. I pick up a dozen magazines, some art, some home and garden, and some trashy gossip rags, anything to help her while away her time. I pick up chocolates, then put them back. Normally she would love them even while she was feeling sick, 
It would give her something to look forward to once recovered, but now I fear they would seem like a slap in the face. I'm on tenterhooks. Every well-intentioned decision runs the risk of interpretation as a deliberate slight. Feeling nauseous? Here, have some chocolates I know you can't stomach. I opt for flowers instead. I open the door gently, not wishing to disturb her if she had fallen asleep. I can hear whispering coming from the drawing room. I stand outside, not intending to eavesdrop, but intrigued at who she is on the phone to. I can only make out part of the conversation, but the message is unmistakable. She's explaining our problems to someone, most likely a friend as her go-to confidant her mother knows from her recent stay. I knock gently and the talking stops at once. I hand her the magazines and lay out the medication on the small coffee table. I notice that her phone is out of reach on the dresser. Could she have put it there, then gone back to a seated position in the time between my knock and entering the room? I didn't think so. She looks frail and is moving gingerly. She must have been talking to herself then. She is a private person with few close friends. Perhaps it's not so surprising she's looking inward for solace and answers. Even with my wife desperately unwell in the room, the picture demands attention. It wants to be the centerpiece and dominate the space around it. The shut blinds block out the daylight, and in the gloom her face has a dark aspect. Her mouth curls up into a malicious sneer directed at me, the source of the anguish. It's a trick of the light, but she looks like my wife in the shadows. The indistinct features of her face now clearer and more pronounced. The suggestion of my wife's high cheekbones and intelligent, caring eyes. I am projecting, I know. I make to sit on the leather wingback chair we have in the drawing room so that I can talk to my wife. I just want to be alone, Alex. Where the picture has grown definition, my wife's sickness has drained her of hers. Her skin baggy and pale, like a shapeless, doughy mass stretched to looseness beyond its limits, with vague indentations in place of her eyes, nose, and mouth. It is clear she has been crying. How awful she looks wins me, physically knocking the breath from my lungs. Let me help you. You this, Alex. How can you help? I glance at the picture as I leave. I see it grin in the darkness, celebrating its triumph. It is 3am and I sit outside the drawing room listening to snatches of conversation as my wife whispers my crimes to her canvas mentor. In the echoing darkness I fancy I can hear two voices. One racked with sorrow, and the other gleefully malevolent, a hissing snake dripping poison in my wife's ears. This is bullshit. I'm not going to sit by and let my wife waste away, locked alone in the darkness. I push open the door. The room is pitch black. I hear movement, but it echoes around the space, seeming to come first from one corner, then another, It is a slithering sound, heavy cloth dragged along the floor, up the walls, and across the ceiling as it moves around the room. We need to talk. She doesn't want to talk. 
A hissing voice comes back at me, echoing around the darkness. Jesus, she's referring to herself in the third person. How badly did I hurt her to send her over the edge like this? But a primal voice in my head screams at me, That's not her voice, it warns me. I know it, but I do not want to listen. What the hell is going on? Just talk to me, for God's sake. I flick the table lamp on, and in its gentle light, she is on me in an instant. A nightmare made flesh. If it were my wife once, it is now just an echo of her, replaced by the venom and hatred of the pain I have caused. She is bone-thin, limbs elongated to monstrous proportions. Her skin is dry and white, stretched to near transparency, so that black veins show through. Her eyes are huge, red-rimmed and bloodshot. They bulge from her skull-thin face. Black gums separate her now razor-sharp teeth. I see all of this in less than a second before she swats the lamp to the floor, where it shatters. The room plunges into darkness again, and I feel her launch at me, clawing viciously at my eyes. I raise my arms to protect my face. I feel the agony of deep gouges torn from my flesh. I am out of the room. She does not follow, retreating instead into her dark lair. I slam the door shut and run upstairs and lock myself in the bathroom. My right arm is drenched in blood from three angry gashes. My skin is burning and my heart is racing. I should feel pain, but the adrenaline is coursing through my veins. Fight or flight? Flight. The haven of the locked bathroom. I take out some antiseptic liquid and brace myself for the fire. I clean my wounds gingerly. Blood spatters the sink, mirror, and tiled floor. I dress the wounds badly with gauze, bandage, and tape. I can feel a dull ache building that promises to grow and sharpen. I feel sick. Nausea from the attack and the adrenaline dump. Holy fuck what is going on. My mind is already rationalizing events. My wife attacked me. She is furious about what I did. She has made herself sick with worry and it's all coming out. I'm sleep deprived. The room was dark. Did I really see anything other than my fury of a woman scorned? My wife? You saw it, my instinctive animal brain tells me, shouting against the deafening noise of its louder, rational counterpart in desperate denial. The painting. It came from the painting. I sit huddled with my back against the door in case the thing tries to break through. I take out my mobile phone. My right arm is shaking and weak from the attack. I am strangely aware of how difficult it is to hold the phone against the wrong ear. Hello? Your fucking picture is killing my wife and it's trying to kill me too! Alix, why are you calling me so late? She attacked me! Your wife attacked you? The picture! Your fucking picture attacked me! It's taken her over! Possessed her! Alix, you brought Trezon, betrayal, into your own home. This is your own doing, not mine. Oh, you bitch! Alix, why haven't you told me your wife's name? What? You traveled to Paris to see me. You spent a small fortune on a gift for her to ease your guilt. But you only ever referred to her as my wife. Uh, she... You won't even admit what you did, will you? I... She is not your possession, Alix. My wife. <laughs> you treat her like she exists only as an accessory to you. She is a woman, Alix. She has a name. 
I drop the phone and break down weeping. I can still hear Camille's distant tinny voice as blood drips from my arm onto the screen. Eventually, I steel myself for what I must do. I head down to the drawing room and turn the handle with my left hand. I can hear the guttural hiss of Trahizon, betrayal. It is hiding in the darkness. It is everywhere, dominating the room with its malevolence. I see the picture. She is trapped inside it. My wife. No. Anna. I'm sorry. My voice cracks with the grief and strain. Betrayal lets out an ear-splitting screech. I'm so sorry. It flies towards me from the darkness of the corner, slamming me over the chaise long where I land on the glass-topped coffee table. It shatters, driving razor shards of glass into my cheek and shoulder. Tears stream down my face and my racking sobs blow snot and mucus down my chin. I had an affair. I was unfaithful. Its ice-cold, bony hands are around my throat. I can feel its fetid breath as it bears down on me, biting and snapping. There are no excuses, Anna. This, None of this is, is on you. It, it, it's all on me. My own weakness, my own shortcomings. <laughs> the words come out in gasps as I fight for air against the overpowering creature, but its grip is slackening. You <laughs> didn't, didn't deserve it. I, I would do anything to take back what I've done, but I can't. Its grip feels warmer, its needle teeth gone. All I can do is try to make amends in whatever way I can. A final screech and the unbearable pressure of the creature is gone, replaced by the familiar safe weight of Anna. We hug and weep together for hours. The broken glass beneath me slices at my flesh, but it does not matter. In the morning, I take the picture down from its easel. Anna looks puzzled. What are you doing? Destroying it. But it costs so much money. And it's a Camille L'Enfer. It nearly cost us everything, Anna. No, Alex. It's just a picture. In our final tale, we join a man as he recounts his teenage years growing up on a farm, meeting the love of his life, and dealing with the regular trials and tribulations of family life. But in this tale, shared with us by author Blair Wolf, we discover that life on this ranch is a little more dramatic than normal, thanks to a certain structure looming tall in the center of their lives. Performing this dark tale are Graham Rowett, Sarah Thomas, Jeff Clement, Aaron Lillis, 
and Jesse Cornett. So think back fondly on your first kiss. Remember the delicious coolness of sweet iced tea on a hot day. But don't forget that haunted summer in the shadow of the Black Silo. A lot went down in the summer of 1995. The clearest crystal, I remember how I was falling hard for Miss Abby Lacey Caskell. Despite all the pain and heartache that occurred back then, and which still returns to me as nightmares to this day, memories of her are still just as sweet as if they'd never been tainted by what was to come. Because that summer, we did battle with evil. I can recall one stiflingly muggy night in particular. Blossom, Alabama tended to feel just like it had been dunked in molasses during the warmer months. Abby was sat cross-legged on my futon while I lay flat out on the floor trying to catch a breeze. We were deep in debate regarding a particular poster I'd recently acquired and fixed to the slanted wall directly across from the futon where I slept. Said poster featured blonde bombshell Miss Pamela Anderson, or rather her beloved and pleasantly bouncy Baywatch character C.J. Parker in her infamous little red swimsuit. She stood with her hands on hips, glaring saucily into camera, and to my 17-year-old brain, it felt just as if Pam was directing those come-hither eyes my way. Now, Abigail was of the opinion that my treasured wall art represented what she called an affront to natural femininity and standards of beauty, which pandered only to the male gaze and contributed to upholding the patriarchal regime. That was the summer she took to reading Camille Paglia. With typical Abby sass, she'd also added, Besides, Mason... That swimsuit is so damn tight, I can just about see her religion. And you know I ain't the church-going type. Huh. My mental gymnastics were never any match for Abby's. I could think of no convincing defense, save for I liked to look at that poster, which Abby just argued proved her point and that I was objectifying old Pam with my male gaze. I wasn't sure how else I was supposed to gaze, but by the end of the night, Pam's golden curves had been rolled up tight and relegated to the back of my closet. Later that week, my auntie Sweet Pea would walk in to fetch my laundry, and upon seeing the missing poster, would roll her eyes and ask if that uppity Abigail Caskell had pitched one of her fits again, and conclude that that girl could make the Pope cuss. My auntie wasn't what you would call a feminist. The thing is, I couldn't have cared less about what happened to my Pam poster, because that was the night Abby and I shared our first kiss. I'd been in love with her as long as I could remember, and all through our childhood friendship I'd known that one day I would ask Abby to be my wife. There was no other like her. Abigail was a firecracker who seemed to know everything about everything and would not be stopped for speaking her mind. I'd always melted in response to the fearsome blaze that seemed to radiate from her. I'd fetched us a jug of sweet iced tea jangling with ice cubes, and as we sat pressing our sweating glasses to our faces and necks to try and combat the sweltering heat of the summer night, 
A sudden and deafening boom of thunder startled us both so badly that only when it had completely faded to silence did we realize we'd grabbed each other's hands. We stayed that way for a while, uncharacteristically shy and awkward with each other all of a sudden. The mixtape I'd recorded from the only rock show Blossom Radio received finished out with Nirvana's About a Girl, and after an almost imperceptible click, Even Flow by Pearl Jam started up. We sat in silence for a further minute, neither of us really hearing the dulcet tones of Eddie Vedder droning on about butterflies. Her hand in mine seemed to be radiating warmth, and after a while I began to feel self-conscious about my sweaty paw enclosing her delicate, tanned fingers. I put my glass down on the side table, dropping it harder than intended, which seemed to snap us both back to reality somewhat. We giggled nervously, both looking away, and then began speaking at the same time. Uh, look, Mason. I started to laugh again, but stopped when I finally looked into her beautiful green eyes and saw that she was serious. She took her hand from mine and pushed her long, dark, wild hair behind her ear and leaned forward. To this day, that kiss was the sweetest I ever had. I felt it all the way out to my ears, which I reckon had turned redder than the day I'd come down with a mighty case of heat stroke after too much swimming in the lake back in 92. As our lips parted, I felt just as if I might float up through the ceiling. Before my faculties had quite returned to me, the door burst open and Mikey, my out-of-breath little brother, panted out, any sweet pea says to call you for dinner. God damn it, Mikey. You ever hear a knocking? But I was feeling too wrapped up in elation to really be annoyed at him. Oh, how are you, Abby? You staying for dinner? Before she could answer, Addie Sweet Pea screeched from the kitchen down the hall. I rolled my eyes, and we got up to leave. Abby ruffled Mikey's hair on her way out and told him to go steal himself a dinner roll to fight off the hunger pains. Abby and I didn't talk much as I drove her home in my Uncle Landon's truck, but I distinctly recall we were both grinning like fools. As she hopped out of the truck at the bottom of the dusty driveway of her family's farm, she threw me a wink and a smile They told me she'd holler at me. I felt like I'd never get to sleep that night. I replayed our kiss over a hundred times, smiling in the darkness. I watched through my window as the storm whipped itself up into a frenzy, lightning making a monstrous silhouette of the massive black corn silo in the distance. But fall asleep I did. And as consciousness departed, I heard the fat drops of rain the thunder had promised begin to fall outside. The next day was sticky and overcast, with a sickly yellow hue to it I didn't like one bit. I looked out my window wiping my eyes and squinting at the strange light. 
and my gaze came to rest on the imposing monolith, standing impossibly tall and brooding over everything. The black silo. I tried to avoid looking at it if I could help it, as it gave me the shudders. Don't get me wrong, I wasn't a wuss of any particular order. I was a farm boy born and raised, tough as I needed to be. The first eight years had been spent on my daddy's farm one town over, and after the accident that took my parents, Mike and I had come here to live with my auntie Sweet Pea and Uncle Landon on their farm, the Sanderson Farm, as it was known around these parts. I loved farm living, truly. I loved everything about it, except for that damn monstrous pillar with its belly full of corn. It started when I was six years old. We'd been visiting with Auntie and Uncle one night, and the grown-ups, having had a little too much of Uncle Landon's good cider, had decided we'd better stay over. They'd put me to bed in the room that, unbeknownst to any of us back then, would later become my bedroom. And trusted, in the way of adults who've forgotten what it's like to be a child, that I would nod off to sleep without any trouble. It was still early in the evening, however, and I wasn't ready to be gotten rid of quite so easily. I decided to spy on them. Pretending they were a gang of supervillains led by Auntie Sweet Pea, who I figured had a silly enough name to be a comic book character already, I would be Batman sticking to the shadows and creeping through the rickety house soundlessly. Although my Ninja Turtle gem is clashed somewhat with my new identity as the world's greatest detective, I was feeling confident in my stealth abilities. Besides, the criminals were all fairly sloshed and unlikely to spot a tiny Ninja Turtle-clad Batman in their midst. As I left Mikey asleep behind me and creeped closer to the living room where they were gathered, their mumbling turned into real words, punctuated by shrieks of laughter. I heard a lot that night. Some of it made me blush and feel an embarrassed kind of giggle rise up in my chest, which I had squashed down with force. There was talk of a young woman named Mary Lou, who my father proclaimed was probably drier than a popcorn fart. I'm still not entirely sure what he meant by this. All I know is the word fart is comedy gold to a six-year-old. Settled in my hiding spot under the dining room table, with a good view of the goings-on, I eventually began to nod off as the grown-up talk simmered down. Having burned off their drunken energy, their lively conversation gave way to quieter talk of old memories. Mom teasing Uncle Landon about the grief he used to cause their poor mother, and Dad mostly backing her up and adding details to stories of skipping school and drinking beer out by the lake. Landon was Mom's big brother, and he and my pops had been friends since their school days, so there was a lot of old history to go over. I was disappointed that I hadn't uncovered any villainous plots to attack Gotham City or take over the world and that there seemed to be no more forthcoming fart jokes from Dad and Uncle Landon, but I was too sleepy to make it back to bed. They were silent for a time, but just as I was about to drift off, Uncle Landon started up again, his voice a little shaky and cautious, which immediately made me strain to listen. Uncle Landon was known to confidently shout the odds about all things, 
He was always booming, whether it was in a rage or doubled over laughing. And Mama used to say he thought the sun came up just to hear him crow. But that night, he was different. I might need to go in and walk the corn soon in the black silo. And Jed says it looks like moisture got in and it's sticking to the sides. <sighs> now, walking the corn can be dangerous. Grain can stick together and build up inside the silo, and sometimes it takes a man to get up inside and unstick it. What you want to watch out for is what's called a bridge, where it seems like the corn you're standing on is steady, but it's actually just packed together on top with a gap underneath. If you break through a bridge, you can be sucked down into the corn in no time, submerged in three seconds or less. Apparently, the pressure is so intense, it feels like your whole body is being squeezed by one of those blood pressure cuffs they put on your arm at the doctor. Corn poking into every inch of you until your skin resembles a golf ball. Most brain deaths are as a result of suffocation. The pressure can force so much corn into a person's mouth and nose that their jaw unhinges and their lungs fill to bursting. Even at six years old, I knew this. I'd had the fear of God put into me to stop me playing anywhere near the silos. But I also knew Uncle Landon had walked the corn a hundred times. It wasn't fear of golf ball skin and unhinged jaws that made his voice shake that night. I listened intently. I know we did what we had to, but I swear, sometimes I can still hear his screams coming from inside that damn thing. And I know, Lorraine, after what he did to you, and, and you were just so little. He took my mom's hand, and she smiled sadly at her big brother. A fat teardrop rolling out of the corner of her eye. Well, that bastard didn't deserve no better. But damned if I don't still wake up in a sweat some nights. Remembering how he was when we pulled him out. Jake, you remember? He looked to my dad, wiping at his face. My dad looked down at the carpet. Stayed silent. You're like a goddamn rag doll. Every one of his bones broken, one of his legs that was, was just twisted round and round like that corn. Got a hold of it and thought it was a wind-up toy. And all the blood forced upwards so it looked like his damn thigh might burst. Like someone had overfilled a purple fucking balloon. His eye holes stuffed with corn. And I remember thinking... My God, his eyes got teeth. Oh, Lord, Landon, now enough of that. Auntie Sweet Pea tried to maintain her usual no-nonsense tone, but I saw her neck and chest had gone a deep red, and her hands were shaking. Bob T's what we need. Now I'll go on and check if we got any sugar cookies left, and then we best get to bed and sleep off your damn cider. She fussed and fretted around the room a minute, collecting up empty bottles and bustled towards the kitchen. 
She walked right by my hiding spot, and I heard her let out a shuddering breath as her stockinged feet hurried by. My parents and Uncle Landon were silent, each staring down at the floor, lost in their memories. I almost screamed when Mikey let out a piercing howl from my room down the hall. I'd been in an awful kind of paralyzed trance, my little kid brain reeling in shocked horror as I pictured the man inside the black silo that Uncle Landon had described. Crushed by corn into no more than a bloody sack of bones, broken into little bits, and eyes full of grinning corn teeth. I scrambled backwards into the darkness as quickly and quietly as I could, and was back into bed with the covers pulled over me just seconds before Mom entered. She picked up Mikey, who was still just a baby then, and took him out into the hallway to gently bounce him and sing sweetly into his ear until he calmed. My heart was pounding so hard I was scared she'd hear it. The curtain blew in the breeze, and as it fluttered I caught sight of the black silo. And I swear I heard it, far off and distant, but undeniable. A tortured screaming, and the animal, guttural noise of a man drowning in corn. During that summer in 95, which I'd later come to associate with my first and most potent taste of true love and my greatest heartbreak in equal measures, Abby and I spent every spare second together. Sometimes I wonder if I hadn't been so blinded by happiness, so absorbed in Abigail's sweetness, would I have paid more attention to what was going on with Mikey. At 12 years old, my little brother wasn't your usual prepubescent, obnoxious little hanger-on like other boys his age. He was happy to entertain himself for hours on end. Once I caught him reenacting an entire Elvis show in front of the mirror, his hair quaffed into an exact likeness of the king's with the aid of Auntie's extra hold hairspray. <laughs> when he spotted me, doubled over and just about crying with silent laughter, the kid just grinned and broke into an enthusiastic rendition of Can't Help Falling in Love with renewed vigor, just enjoying the fact that he'd made me laugh. That was Mikey. He didn't get embarrassed. He was never self-conscious. He was just happy to make other people happy. But things changed that summer. Things changed, and I should have been paying attention. When we sat down to breakfast, which always consisted of bacon, fresh laid eggs, and pancakes, Mikey wasn't piling his plate high like usual. Where before he'd filled every silence, making Uncle Landon roar with laughter as he regaled us with tales of stories he planned to write, hilarious observations about the kids and teachers from school, or a funny dream he'd had. Now, Mikey would barely meet our eyes. After a few days of this, Annie Sweet Pea asked if he was feeling all right, if he wanted to stay in bed and skip his chores a while. Mikey, you okay, honey? He replied that he was fine. He just hadn't been sleeping too well. I'm fine. The dark rings around his eyes seemed to support this theory. 
I remember making a crack about him looking like a raccoon, which he responded to with a tepid smile that didn't reach his eyes. I think I even asked him if a vampire had been at him, as pale and drawn as he was. We'd recently watched a rerun of the Salem's Lot miniseries on TV, and I remember thinking he was taking on an unhealthy resemblance to Ralphie Glick, the little vampire boy. I shuddered as I pictured Mikey floating and tapping outside my window. That scene had made us both hide behind the comforter we'd dragged onto the sofa with us. I didn't pay much mind, and as Annie Sweet Pea looked on worriedly, her already pinched face tightening up another notch as he excused himself from the table after barely a few mouthfuls again. Excuse me, I'm going to my room. I just shrugged as I wolfed out my pancakes. Puberty? I swallowed a syrupy mouthful before hurrying off to meet Abby. Milking the cows was one of my jobs, which I remember I found particularly enjoyable that day, as Abby, now officially my girlfriend, sat on a bench nearby and kept me entertained. Due to Uncle Landon's eccentricities and a powerful desire to never be boring, there wasn't a daisy or buttercup to be had in his barn. All his cows were named for Greek goddesses. I was working on Calliope and about to move on to Hera, trying not to laugh too hard at Abby's silliness and startle the ladies, as Uncle called them. Today's hotter than a jalapeno's coochie. Hotter than a goat's butt in a pepper patch? <laughs> Boy, Mason, I tell you, I know they say just a handful will do, but how on earth am I supposed to feel good about myself when you're so expertly handling these utterly voluptuous babes all day? I mean, you literally get to fondle Aphrodite, the goddess of love, on a daily basis. I just can't compete. Huh. Abby sighed, keeping a straight face. At hearing her name, the biggest Holstein, Aphrodite, turned to look over at us, giving an unimpressed bray through a mouthful of feed, and we fell apart with laughter. <laughs> After a few ridiculous minutes of trying to regain control of ourselves, Abby wiped her eyes and said she'd grab us a couple of Cokes from inside. Be careful. Today's hotter than two hamsters farting in a wool sock. I stroked Calliope's side as the cow stomped her feet, demanding I stop this damn foolery and get back to milking her. And wiped the sweat and laughter-induced tears from my eyes as I watched Abby skip off. It really was unbearably hot that year. I remember it constantly feeling humid and suffocating, like just before a storm breaks. A few minutes later, Abby rushed back into the barn, her hair stuck down with sweat to her forehead and the laughter gone from her eyes, replaced with the gleam of panic. Mason, it's Mikey, over by the silo. I shot up, almost knocking over the milking pail and putting quite a fright up poor Calliope, whose eyes rolled as she stomped and brayed. Horrible frenzied images flashed through my mind. My God, his eyes got teeth as I stumbled, tripping, towards the brightness outside and my little brother. 
Abby took my arm and we ran. As we rounded the corner of the barn and the silo loomed into view, I could make out Mackie's little frame clinging to the steel ladder that ran up its side, about halfway up to the cylindrical hatch door that opened into the dark interior. His head was bowed and his mouth was moving, but I couldn't hear him. His eyes were blank, greasy hair hanging in his face, right ear almost resting against the silo wall, and he appeared to be listening intently. I tried to get him to come on down, but it was like he couldn't hear me, Mason. Like he was in another world or in a trance or something. Abby's eyes were fixed on Mikey and shining with concern. I squeezed her hand and took a few cautious steps towards the silo. Mikey? Mikey, you know we ain't supposed to play near the silo. It's, it's not safe. Although what I meant, what I truly felt, was that it wasn't good. It wasn't clean. Even before that fateful night when I'd heard Uncle Landon's mysterious tale of the bad man in the corn, I'd felt a sort of corruption emanating from the black pillar. My mouth was completely dry, and I was struggling to get the words out to coax my little brother to the ground. Mikey! Mike! I just about whispered. I was scared. More scared than the situation called for, I suppose. He didn't appear to be in any desperate danger, but I was gripped by a sort of primordial fear right then. Fear for my baby brother's life. And I could see in Abby's eyes she could feel it too. Mikey blinked a few times, cocked his head the other direction, and whispered something low as in response. He looked down at me, and for a split second I saw something like hatred in his gaze. It took me a while to understand that, so unaccustomed to seeing such a foreign emotion on Mackie's always open and loving little face, and those sparkling blue eyes which were usually brimming with nothing but affection for me. It stung worse than a slap across my cheek. He started down the ladder, his face blank once more, and as he reached the bottom, he managed a curdled smile in my direction. Don't tell Auntie I was playing here, okay, Mason? I didn't know if it was a request or an order. He walked off towards the house, whistling an odd tune. Abby and I stood where we were, staring after him for a time, neither of us quite understanding what had just happened. Goosebumps broke out across my arms despite the heat, and I started to feel something so alien I wouldn't really land on what it was until long afterwards. But it began to brew and bubble from that day on. I was afraid of Mikey. For him, yes. But mostly of him. A few nights later, I awoke, sweating from a terrible dream. In it, I'd seen our farm in a state of rot. The grass turned gray and diseased, every inch of land dead and unyielding. I walked over the blackening earth to the barn, terrified but unable to turn back, as is the way in dreams, knowing that only dread and madness awaited. The barn lay in darkness, 
but I could make out the humped shapes of Uncle's prized Holsteins. His cow goddesses, now silent and unmoving. Amid the heavy death, I felt the presence of something putrid and wrong, watching me and smiling in the darkness. Against my will, my feet moved me deeper into the barn, deeper into the fecund atmosphere of whatever crouched there. I could make out the sound of something snuffling and gulping, and the hideous sound drew me on. Stepping over the bodies of the cows, which lay ripped open and leaking awful, I found myself in the furthest corner of the large building, staring down at Aphrodite, my favorite cow. I remembered stroking her soft nose and patting her strong back as she was milked. Now she convulsed on the dirt ground, her eyes rolling wildly and seeming to beg for the death her sisters had been granted. Something was crouched over her, greedily suckling at her now tumorous udder, glutton itself on the curdled, sour-smelling black sludge that poured from her. It quivered with pleasure and gulped, its belly now distended with burgeoning putrescence. It was staring at me as it drank, grinning around the poisonous-looking teats. And although my mind tried to force it away, deny it, I stared back into the blue eyes of my baby brother, Mikey. No! Abby came over early the next morning, and I told her about my nightmare. The rotten stickiness of that terrible dreamscape still clinging to me. Still making me feel unclean. Her serious green eyes never left mine as I unburdened myself, and her usually tanned face turned pale as mine felt. When I was done, she stayed silent a while and turned to look out my window, instinctively looking towards the black silo. Something ain't right here anymore, Abby. I know it was just a dream, but it's like I can feel something wrong coming, like it's been coming this whole summer. And Mikey... Mikey doesn't feel like Mikey anymore. Abby didn't tell me it was no big deal or that I was imagining things. She could feel it too. And I loved her all the more for taking me seriously. We both sat on my futon, staring silently at the silo. It looked taller and more imposing than ever, seeming to block out the sun. And... I noticed nothing grew around its base. We were disturbed from our contemplation by Auntie Sweet Pea calling us to breakfast. Yes, breakfast As we entered the kitchen, she was bustling about, laying the table with the usual stacks of pancakes and eggs. Uncle Landon was already out and about, busy attending to the farm with his farmhand, Jed. Mikey was seated, eyes downcast and humming to himself quietly. How are you, Mikey? I poured out some coffee for Abby and me. Mikey looked up from the eggs on his plate he'd been poking at 
his ice blue eyes shining out from behind greasy strands of hair. He continued humming as a grin spread across his face. He just sat there, staring at me with that awful, toothy smirk as syrup and runny eggs dripped from the corner of his mouth, glopping down onto his chest on the table. Sitting there like that, he looked just as he had in my dream. A crouching nightmare with putrid juices dripping from his chin. And as crazy as it sounds, I think he knew exactly what he was doing. Auntie turned towards us and just about dropped the platter of bacon she was carrying. Good Lord, Michael. You stop that disgusting drool in this minute. My word. Your mama is looking down on us from a heaven as we speak, and what do you think she's making of this indecent behavior? Invoking our mama in heaven had always been her favorite way to encourage immediate shame and subsequent good behavior from us boys. Mikey wiped his sleeve across his mouth and wrinkled his brow as if deep in thought, or straining to hear something far away. He looked directly at Auntie and said, matter-of-factly, Mama was a little whore, and she got what was common to her. I'd never seen my auntie speechless before. Her face paled, and one delicate hand fluttered up to her face and covered her mouth in shock. What a thing to say. Oh, Michael. What a terrible thing to say. I saw it then in her eyes. The very same fear that had overtaken me. Mikey had become foreign to us. No longer the messy little kid who always made us smile. Who everyone instinctively loved on sight. He was more akin to a rabid dog or a coiled snake now. Something you knew to stay well away from. <laughs> Auntie left the table quietly as her eyes filled with tears. And Abby and I glanced at each other and also backed away. I looked back at Mikey. He was still grinning, <laughs> blue eyes flashing, and I watched as he snatched up fistfuls of uneaten breakfast from the platters and shoved them into his mouth gorily. Now, I don't know if it was my mind playing tricks or some slant of the light, but where his dainty little boy's hands should have been, I saw the huge, scarred, hairy hands of a grown man. Seeing those freakish paws that didn't belong at the ends of my skinny brother's little wrists scared me badly. And I grabbed Abby's hand and ran. In the days following the incident at breakfast, Uncle Landon and Auntie drove Mikey into town to see the doctor. And she was convinced he'd come down with some malady or other. I hoped she was right. But deep down, I knew better. The doc didn't find anything wrong. In fact, he walked out of his office ruffling Mikey's hair, the two of them having a fine old laugh. He told my aunt and uncle that Mikey was healthy as an ox and a sweet kid to boot. It should have been a relief. I made several attempts to talk to my little brother. 
to get him to come play catch out back like we used to or go for walks with me and Abby, but he always wriggled out of it by claiming he was tired or that he needed to go do something. Or he'd just stare at me with his frightening blank eyes until I let him be. There were no more incidents of him being outright cruel or vicious. It seemed as if he was just fading away, which was somehow even more frightening. I started to realize that Mikey might be lost to me forever. What had started as the best summer of my life was curdling into a sour, sticky nightmare that not even Abby's sweetness could drag me out of. One sweaty night, I awoke to a pressure near my feet. Something more sense than actually felt. Groggily emerging from a fitful sleep, my sweat turned cold on me as I realized someone was there with me, whispering. I stayed still and tried to keep my breathing even so whatever it was would think I was still asleep. And as my eyes adjusted, I made out Mackie's slight silhouette sitting on the end of my bed. His little feet were curled under him, and he was propped up with his face against my window, facing out towards the silo. I strained to make out what he was whispering, but I couldn't catch it. I sat up slowly, trying not to startle him. Mikey? He stopped his murmuring and snapped his head towards me. In the faint light from the window, I saw something like pleading in his wide eyes, and his mouth hung open as if he'd just seen something to make your blood turn cold. He looked at me like that for a moment, neither of us saying a word. When he broke the silence, his voice came out cracked and louder than I'd expected. Soon. Soon, Mason. It's... He fainted, falling backwards off my futon, and I lurched forward to cradle his head before it hit the floor. One blisteringly hot Sunday towards the end of that fateful summer, Abby and I were returning to the farm following a day of swimming and sunning ourselves at the lake. The day had been full of laughter and sweet kisses, and it lifted my spirits to soaring. I'd begun to feel like maybe Mikey had just been feeling a little off, like maybe it really was just puberty hitting him like the freight train it was, and we could put this awful business behind us. I planned on sitting them down that night and summoning all my older brother wisdom for a real heart-to-heart. I was a stupid fool in love, my common sense clouded over by the glow in my heart that I thought could somehow radiate out of me and into everything I touched. We were laughing and swinging our clasped-together hands as we rounded the bend and pushed through the shrubs that would bring us onto a path leading off from the barn. As we passed the barn and the silo came into view, our laughter dried up, both Abby and I shivering a little despite the ungodly heat. We squeezed each other's hands a little tighter. It seemed somehow larger that day, towering over everything, radiating blackness. A foul smell emanated from it, hitting us suddenly and forcefully. 
I pulled back from Abby, gagging. And as I was turned away, I heard her let out a scream that wrapped my spine in prickling ice. She grabbed my arm and spun me around, pointing upwards. Mason, he's going in! No! I dropped the picnic basket and towels I'd been carrying and ran. I saw my little brother's bare left foot disappearing into the hatch door at the top of the black silo as he heaved himself inside. My mind was spinning. His eyes got teeth. I launched myself up the first rungs on the side of the silo and called back to Abby to get my uncle landed. Each step up felt like moving through swamp water. The air here felt thick and breathing felt like swallowing lumps of something that needed chewing. The smell engulfed me. The smell of rotten innards. But I pushed through. I reached the top and stepped inside carefully, standing on the jutting ledge that stuck out over the corn. The inside of the silo was hotter than I could have imagined, and fresh sweat immediately popped on my brow. It was so quiet. All I could hear was my heart booming like a jackhammer. I let out a rush of breath in relief as I saw Mikey standing at the far end of the skinny ledge. I took a shallow breath of the rotten air and began to move towards him, slowly. I reached him and said his name quietly, putting my hands on his shoulders. Mikey! Mikey looked around at me, tears running down his face. But for the first time in a long time, he was my Mikey, my sweet baby brother. Tears poured from my eyes, too, and I smiled down at him. Let's go, Mike. I tried to gently steer him towards the hatch. I'm sorry, Mason. I can't. It's too late now. He's here. He's here to take me to mom and dad. I didn't know. The corn started moving. We both heard the low rumble begin as it started shifting, as if some monstrous snake was ascending from the bowels of the silo, slipping and sliding over itself. The smell grew overpowering. I stood frozen in terror, gripping Mikey's shoulders like a vice, and caught glimpses of something gray and slippery as the corn tumbled and swelled. The corn suddenly seemed alive, like a vat of writhing maggots, or like the scurrying of thousands of wood lice exposed to the light. I pulled at Mikey desperately, but he took a step forward, seemingly hypnotized by the rustling and swelling below. He tugged, and his arm broke free of my sweaty hold as if we were greased. I watched my little brother fall forward and screamed again, lurching to grab him and almost going over myself. I reached him just in time, holding onto his hand with both of mine. I lay on my belly, stretched as far as I could over the ledge where he hung. As I looked down into his face, tears falling freely and blurring my vision, I saw his eyes finally clear. 
I saw as the reality of what was happening finally reached him, and his blue eyes widened. His mouth contorted into an O of true terror. I pulled with every ounce of strength in me, but as he started to rise towards the ledge, something in the corn exploded upwards and latched onto his dangling legs. Mikey's scream was blood-curdling. It sucked him down away from me, but I couldn't let go, bellowing with the effort until I felt an intense gripping along my shoulder that made my vision flash red. Leaning even further over the edge, I saw a pair of huge, hairy hands crushing into my brother's ankles, tugging him towards the sea of corn. I saw filthy gray hair and a grinning face, pockmarked and bleeding where it had been lacerated and crushed by jostling kernels. A mouth stretched impossibly wide, and I saw eye sockets packed to bursting with white yellow corn eyes that looked like they had teeth. My grip slipped momentarily, and suddenly my hands were empty. I screamed until it felt like my chest would rip apart, and my screams mingled with Mikey's, echoing off the cylindrical walls and bouncing back at me in a way that felt like mocking. I watched as Mikey was pulled under saw his legs twist as the corn grabbed at them like a solid tornado. His face turned purple as blood was forced upwards, and his beautiful blue eyes filled with red as blood vessels burst. I saw corn dig and cut into every inch of his face and neck, forcing its way into his ears, and finally cutting off his screams as it rushed into his nose and mouth cracking his jaw open wide. And then, he was gone. The rest of what happened that day is kind of a blur. I think a piece of my mind broke so completely that it'll never fully recover. What I do remember comes to me in flashes, as though a strobe light was flickering around me. I remember being pulled out of the hatch by emergency responders, my arm broken in several places, tendons torn around my right shoulder. I remember Abby, red-faced and crying, telling me she was there, she was with me. I remember Auntie Sweetbee, crumbled in the dirt outside the silo, inconsolable. And Uncle Landon, white-faced and looking like he might faint dead away. And I remember being taken away to the hospital in a helicopter, rising in a swirl of dirt and dust and impossible noise. The paramedic with me told me to look down, perhaps to give me something to focus on besides my grief. When I did, I saw my family and Abby looking up at me. My shattered family. I saw some type of machine hooked up to the silo to empty out the corn so Mikey's crushed little body could be recovered, I learned later. And I saw a man standing next to the silo. Impossibly huge, gray-haired and grinning. 
He waved at me with one enormous hand. I watched until he was the size of an ant, staring, willing him to disappear, until I lost consciousness. the letters back in their envelopes. It's time to take our leave for now. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and being a supportive Season Pass member and for being ever curious. This audio production is copyright 2021 by Creative Reason Media, Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.